Human progress. The goals are simple. The end to hunger, environmental abuse, economic and racial inequality, and all in all, suffering. We're familiar with these ideas. Some of us have experienced these problems. Coming up with solutions, well, it's a more modern concept, isn't it? It's because the world is more connected and aware than it's ever been in history. Issues aren't isolated, separated, or local anymore. They're global. As an individual living in the United States, what I consume and what I know aren't specific to where I'm at. I use products manufactured in China, Mexico, and Thailand. When I use something at Starbucks for a whole five seconds, a napkin, a straw, a creamer cup, and a pack of sugar, I generally know how this product gets thrown to waste, maybe into the oceans, maybe burned up into the air. Every week, I fill up a trash bag full of stuff. Even though I recycle or try to reduce my footprint, it only feels like a drop in the bucket. Oh, and I drive a car by myself 99% of the time. I eat products wrapped in paper and plastics. To think of it, this whole society is filled with pretty wasteful human beings. But how can I change? What could I possibly do to affect change? Well, the World Economic Forum maybe has an answer. And what we really need to do is hit the big reset button. My name is Michael, and this is my observation theory. Let's get it. Have you considered a world without private property? No privacy, maybe. A sharing economy utopia. Does this sound like a communist conspiracy? Well, no, it's not. It's actually what some in the World Economic Forum believe is the solution to environmental problems and probably much, much more. Recent headlines have struck around Klaus Schwab's statements in June calling on leaders for a great reset following the COVID-19 pandemic. Klaus Schwab, who coined the Great Reset, is the executive chairman of the World Economic Forum an international organization advocating on agendas aimed at improving the global state of the world through business, academics, and politics. The group hosts a meeting every year in January in Davos, Switzerland. The meeting brings together thousands of business leaders, international political leaders, economists, celebrities, and journalists for up to five days to discuss global issues. Its partners feature major multinational corporations around the world. Critics have claimed this great reset, or the reimagining of our world, as dangerous to a free society. These concerns stem from the speculation about power plays from a global elite. In Canada, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau said this in a recent conference, and I quote, The pandemic has provided an opportunity for a reset. This is our chance to accelerate our pre-pandemic efforts to reimagine economic systems that actually address global challenges like extreme poverty inequality, and climate change, end quote. Canadian conservative Aaron O'Toole warned against these statements, warning of global financial elites attempting to re-engineer economies and societies in order to empower the elites at the expense of the people. He called for a petition calling on the government to protect our freedom and end plans to impose the Great Reset. CBC News criticized these claims from the conservative as missing the point entirely, because the reset is actually an ideology to improve future, not destroy it, and its goals are set at correcting fundamental institutions and how they cooperate. So you may ask yourself, what is the Great Reset? Well, glad he asked. The Great Reset 
can refer to multiple things, but in essence, it's reimagining how corporations operate. And if it sounds scary, it can be, but it's also compelling. In an article written by Klaus Schwab in Time, he stated in today's world, the economic and political system that brought prosperity to the American century is now the same force that's creating inequality, climate change, and social unrest. While it was good and dandy at first, it is now the cause of our greatest challenges ahead. To understand the Great Reset, we need to understand what we're resetting in the first place. He points out that COVID-19, while tragic, has provided a case study of how governments, corporations, and nations can cooperate in order to come up with solutions, like a vaccine for an example. He said that this should really not be the exception, but the rule. To understand more deeply what a Great Reset is, we need to understand a little bit more about what corporations are. In other words, what is the purpose of a company or corporation in society? While profit might be your first answer, it's not actually as simple as it seems. This is where it gets into more managerial theories in science. When you are managing thousands to hundreds of thousands of employees, there are an infinite amount of decisions being made every single day and almost at every moment, especially if you're global. These decisions happen at the top levels but it also happens at the lowest levels. Within each decision, there's usually multiple parties involved. For the average corporate desk employee, you probably consider a few things when going through your day and tasks. What's good for my customer or client? What's good for my company? What's good for my boss? Will my work create value? How do I determine its value? Within each of the questions, it involves various factors, time, resources, and people politics. And within each of these, there are again, even more factors. Finally, when you come to a decision, you need to figure out the best path forward. The question is, what guides what is the best path forward? Now let's extrapolate up to management and then to the CEO. Management is also responsible for all the things that we are, but they're also responsible for us, their employees, the work that we do, our value, and the decisions we make. Managers have to manage this. That's why they're managers. Then, CEOs are responsible for all these managers, and then the company as a whole. Again, within each of these things, there are many more factors, and with significantly greater weight. And this is where managerial theories and the like come into play. Without getting bogged into the details, a key transformation in the latter half of the 20th century was to simplify decisions a company makes into one single idea. Maximizing shareholder value. That is, maximizing the value that a company is worth in the market, and in return, the value that the stockholders get. With this simple but powerful idea, the goals, objectives, and decisions within a company all ladder up to some simple truths. Revenue, profits, and future value. This may seem obvious, and well, it seems that way because most of us grew up in a time with large multinational corporations. Now this idea is important because there are inherent problems within this, especially at the level of the CEO who is responsible for the entire company. Consider this. When working at a company, you do consider maximizing the value at your company, but you also consider your working conditions, your progression, and the culture. Companies that purely follow maximizing shareholder value, or MSV, can lead to bad company practices. Think about Enron. Some claim that maximizing shareholder value primarily benefits only the top executives at the company, and this is because their compensation is largely stock-based. CEOs are also incentivized by MSV to fill up their bonus checks. A consequence is that companies can become narrow-sighted on short-term profits rather than long-term growth. Also, some theories about stagnating wages also point to MSV as the culprit. Why? 
because maximum profit comes at reducing your costs. And reducing costs can lead to practices such as outsourcing, lowering wages, less promotions, and many, many other things. In today's reality, though, even the top economists do not have a clear understanding of why wages have stagnated in the past 50 years. There are many theories, but less concrete answers, which makes some sense because these are huge money-making machines. But realistically, the answer probably lies somewhere in the obvious. Greed. Okay. So back in the day, companies becoming profitable used to be a great thing. Let's not be fooled here. While I describe some negative effects, the positive effects are just as obvious. American corporations have grown and increased the standard of living in the country exponentially. In other words, we are a developed country. And as the saying goes, many of us live like kings compared to those in previous ages. It might not be obvious, but worrying about rent, debt, and relationships is a little different than worrying about crops, food, droughts, and barbarian pillagers. We eat foods rich in fat, albeit processed, and we have liquor stores for our more devious pleasures. We have access to entertainment and many, many other things that fill up the big gaping hole of loneliness. No one seems to know what- Ah, oh, wait, I'm supposed to be talking about the positive things. So growing companies means prosperity for all. I mean most. I mean some. You know what I'm saying. It's mostly sort of kind of good. So that leads us to inequality. If stagnating wages is one aspect, then the increasing bonuses for senior leaders and their stocks is another. In here, we can see a generalized picture of the wealth gap. Of course, there are other factors like increasing college debt, barriers to entry, education, and other socioeconomic factors, but that we will save for another day. So the goal of the Great Reset is to shift corporations' focus from being shareholder-driven to being stakeholder driven. Before the World Economic Forum held its annual meeting, they released the 2020 Davos Manifesto and outlined its agenda for what the purpose of future companies should be. It reads as follows. The purpose of a company is to engage all its stakeholders in shared and sustained value creation. In creating such value, a company serves not only its shareholders, but all its stakeholders, employees, customers, suppliers, local communities, and society at large, end quote. As you can see, local communities and society at large are more newly introduced factors in the realm of multinational corporations. So what are the implications? The implications are that the World Economic Forum's vision of the future is to expand the scope of corporations. It calls for greater cooperation between corporations and governments. Whereas politics historically has dealt with human issues through laws and regulations, the Great Reset calls on companies to do so, in lockstep with the politicians. The worrisome part is that you don't get to vote for the company boards. Company decisions are not held to the standard that Congress, Senate, and judicial systems are held to. And the Great Reset aims to transform the paradigm from companies that are only businesses to companies that are also catalysts for social and environmental change. So it sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Here, we need to think about it a little more. What are the potential ramifications? In a nutshell, I would describe this as a concentration of power. Imagine the government and corporations become more united. What if they have free reign over your data, your purchasing behavior, and across all the different companies? Why would they want this? It's because you need more control, more power, and less process to forcibly fix issues of inequality and climate change. Why? Well, think about the entire world. Why is there still global hunger and poverty? Why is there still economic inequality within developed countries? You've probably asked yourself these questions at some point. Then consider the answer 
that I believe the World Economic Forum would pose. They might say it's because power and decisions are far too distributed among the globe. Competing interests, governments, and individuals lead to unequal results. What we need to do is consolidate power that exists within national governments, multinational corporations, and individuals, and then redistribute. The result is a more modern, more perfected form of communism. Intuitively, we are indoctrinated in the West to fear communism. But why? Because in communism, for obvious reasons, there is less room for individual choice. In both communism and fascism, individual choice or preference matter less than society as a whole. In communism, religion and private property are both abolished. The government controls all labor and wealth and individual choices. In perfect theory, individuals make up the group, but in reality, we know that the group tends to influence the individual. Think about social media and other outlets. What is peer pressure? What is the popular opinion? So while individuals in the group, in communism or fascism, get to make the decision, ultimately, the group makes the decision. So intuitively, why is less individual choice bad? Well, it might not be as evil as you think. Or it might be even more evil as you think. Depends on how you think it through. See, I believe that the World Economic Forum and other like-minded thinkers believe that individual choice is actually the root problem for many of the global issues today. On top of a growing population, individual choice tends to lead to bad decisions overall. Individuals have too many different beliefs and opinions and practices, and the lack of cohesiveness slows progress. As with most authoritarian type regimes, these choices and mandates should be directed from the top. By doing so, corporatist type organizations like the World Economic Forum believe that the world should run like a well-functioning business. Again, consider how we went through the exercise of managerial theory. The point is, individuals need to be regulated, just like we need to regulate the corporations. Now let's try to make this more tangible and put an example to all this, and not just take my word for it, but a word from someone that actually works in the World Economic Forum. In this wrap-up, I'm going to hone in on one of the primary issues within the World Economic Forum and other multinational advocacy groups, one that they care deeply about, and one that we should all care about, climate change. Ida Aukin is a member of parliament in Denmark and a member of the World Economic Forum. She is an advocate for climate change policy. Here's her take on the challenge that we face today. No, it's of course happening because we are 7 billion people now on the planet. We're going up to 9 billion. Think about 3 billion people entering the middle class, all wanting cars, mobile phones, computers, eating meat. I mean, this is a huge pressure on the resources we have. And that's why the prices have come up so dramatically the last 15 years. So this makes sense. Our overall population continues to rise. And this is an obvious strain on our resources. Let me point out one part though. Ida specifically points out that 3 billion people are entering the middle class. The middle class are the ones buying cars for themselves and filling up stuff in their homes. And the way she poses this is, well, it's a problem. This is one angle in how you can view individual choice as being problematic. Freedom and the American dream are wasteful and we need to regulate the individual. Here's another thought. How hard is it to convince one person to change their habits out of their own free will? It's nearly impossible, right? or if you could, it could take a very, very long time. But with climate change, we really don't have any time at all, according to those sounding the alarm on climate change. Now, if it's nearly impossible to change one person's habits, how about seven billion people? This is where the vision of a more cooperative, multinational, multi-government, multi-corporate power comes into play. A new world order, 
if you like it that way. So as I mentioned, individual rights and ownership can pose a problem to climate change because we each require our own things. Private property, private rights, could be viewed as unequal and wasteful. And in theory, if you give all companies and all governments the means of ownership, you can fix the problem by redistributing property, wealth, and rights accordingly. I will point to is a very big move that's happening at the moment from product to service. I have a friend, he says, every product is a service waiting to happen. If you think about it, I mean, your cell phone, why, why do you want to own your cell phone? Does, how, how many of you own your cell phones? How many knows if the company owns it? It's actually not a lot. I mean, you want the, you want the function, you want the service, right? Why do you want to own a cell phone if you can just lease it? And if you lease, why, why shouldn't you lease your refrigerator or your washing machine or your dishwasher? Or why do you want to own it? I mean, it's not like the plastic in the middle is like, you, I own a, a broke dishwasher. I mean, wow. No, why don't you want to go into a business model where the company owns it? You know what happens when the company owns it? Actually, they can bring down the prices because they don't have to buy new metal and new plastic. They design a much better product. It lasts a lot longer if they have to pick it up when it breaks. They might even send somebody to fix it. And, uh, and in the end, um, they will do a better product and you will get a lower price. And I, there's, all the math is done on this and it's McKinsey. So if somebody thinks I'm a, like a green freak talking about stuff, uh, this is actually calculated by McKinsey that it's much cheaper to lease a washing machine if you get, in, if you get the business model right because you don't have to own all of this. So this change from product to service is pushing a lot of this. Uh, of the circular economy, because the second the business owns the products, they start designing them in, in a way where everything can be taken out and reused. And then you get the incentives rights. Product to service is another way of saying government redistribution, a world where all services become free. In order to do so, we need to run the world like one big corporate machine. The purpose again is to eradicate inequality and waste. And in the 21st century, the World Economic Forum has called for companies and governments to work together to shape the future on these issues. Please note, these ideas are not very popular on the interwebs, and for reasons I am sure you can imagine. Ending inequality and climate change is important, but at what cost? Is this a global, one-world government conspiracy? Nah. But this is what's happening at thought leadership seminars among top executives, politicians, and the wealthy around the world. And it can be seen under some of the greater societal messages we are receiving and will continue to receive in the US and abroad in the future. It's important we pay attention and observe. I will end with some excerpts from a blog post written by Ida Aukin in 2016. As a reminder, she is a member of parliament in Denmark and part of the World Economic Forum. She wrote this blog post as a thought exercise in 2016. It's titled, Here's How Life Could Change in My City, by the year 2030. Welcome to the year 2030. Welcome to my city, or should I say, our city. I don't own anything. I don't own a car. I don't own a house. I don't own any appliances or any clothes. It might seem odd to you, but it makes perfect sense to us in this city. Everything you considered a product has now become a service. We have access to transportation, accommodation, food, and all the things we need in our daily lives. One by one, all these things became free, so it ended up not making sense for us to own much. In our city, we don't pay any rent because someone else is using our free space whenever we do not need it. My living room is used for business meetings when I'm not there. Once in a while, 
I will choose to cook for myself. It's easy. The necessary kitchen equipment is delivered at my door within minutes. Since transport became free, we stopped having all those things stuffed in our home. Why keep a pasta maker and a crepe cooker crammed into our cupboards? We could just order them when we need them. When AI and robots took over much of our work, we suddenly had time to eat well, sleep well, and spend time with other people. The concept of rush hour makes no sense anymore, since the work that we do can be done at any time. I don't really know if I would call it work anymore. It's more like thinking time, creation time, and development time. My biggest concern is all the people who do not live in our city, those we lost on the way, those who decided it became too much, all this technology, those who felt obsolete and useless when robots and AI took over big parts of our jobs, those who got upset with the political system and turned against it. They live different kinds of lives outside of the city. Some have formed little self-supplying communities. Others have just stayed in empty and abandoned houses in the small 19th century villages. Once in a while, I get annoyed about the fact that I have no real privacy, nowhere I can go and not be registered. I know that somewhere, everything I do, think, and dream is recorded. I hope that nobody will use it against me. All in all, it is a good life, much better than the path that we were on when it became so clear that we could not continue with the same model of growth. We had all these terrible things happening. Lifestyle diseases, climate change, the refugee crisis, environmental degradation, completely congested cities, water pollution, air pollution, social unrest, and unemployment. We lost way too many people before we realized that we could do things differently. Thanks for listening. This is The Observation Theory.